Some of you will remember where you were uh, when you heard that uh, Benjamin and Agatha had been born. Um, some of you will remember very well where you were. Um, my mum uh, has etched into her memory, not in a good way, uh, where she was when our first child, Stephen, was born 14 years ago yesterday, uh, Friday, uh, because we went dark on her, not deliberately, but for about probably eight hours, she didn't hear a thing. Um, and if you can imagine what she was going through at the time, she wasn't best pleased when I finally got round to actually picking up my mobile phone and calling her. We were just busy with Catherine giving birth. We just um, forgot to let anybody know what was actually happening. But she was very relieved when she heard those first words that a child has been born, the, 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 the excitement of it, the, the wonder of it, are at the heart of the reading that we've got in um, our Bible passage today. You'll find them on page 1,025 if you've got given a Bible on the way in. And they're part of our little series looking at the unbreakable love of God, the covenant love of God. Page 1,024, it's Luke chapter 1. In fact, it's over the page on page 1,027. 1,027, Luke chapter 1. Actually, while I'm about it, I went, one of the reasons I popped out as we were singing just then is because I'd completely, um, I thought I'd missed the opportunity to welcome um, our newest member of the church, um, little Henry, who's currently, I, I could put, put the mockers on it now, but he's currently fast asleep, as far as I can tell, in uh, Dad, um, uh, Daniel's uh, arms, uh, Darren's arms there. So congratulations to you. I was saying congratulations to Danielle next door and then to going, but where's Henry? Well, actually, he's in there. So three weeks old, I think, today. Congratulations. Um, fantastic. Um, the passage that we're going to look at in Luke chapter 1 is, uh, comes out of the heart of a new dad. And the new dad is called Zachariah. And Zachariah is just overwhelmed with excitement. But it's an odd sort of excitement and it comes out in an odd, odd sort of way. And to understand why he speaks the words I'm about to read for you, we have to get a little bit of background, a little bit of context... And then I think we'll find that the words that he says actually are not just for him and for his family and for those who are excited about his child, but for any of us who actually believe that we want to be able to pass on to our children, to the next generation, and even for ourselves to have that offer of hope that so illuminated his heart. So just explain where these come from, then I'll read the reading. So Zachariah was far too old to have children. So was his wife, far too old. And yet, God gave him a promise that they would have a child, and that this child would have a special job to do. It's one of the readings that we often read in the run-up to Christmas, because the child that Zachariah and his wife were about to have, his wife Elizabeth, was called John. We now know as John the Baptist the one who was the forerunner of Jesus, who turned out actually to be Jesus' cousin, at least through their parents. And Zachariah is given this promise, and Zachariah does what you or I would, given, would do when given a promise of something that's impossible. He laughs, and he doesn't believe it. And so, as a sign that this promise will come about, he's struck dumb. So for nine months, he can't speak. Now, you would think that that was plenty enough to celebrate at the point when 
John was actually born, because suddenly he could speak again. So all those pent-up emotions, all those words he'd wanted to say, came pouring out of him. And yet it wasn't simply the pent-up emotion of not being able to speak. It wasn't simply the astonishment at this ridiculous, outrageous, unbelievable promise being fulfilled, nor even, which would be quite enough, the wonder at becoming a dad for the first time. What poured out of him was a much wider and deeper and richer sense of fulfilment. That God hadn't simply fulfilled a little promise to a little family, big as it was for them, but in John, and especially in his cousin Jesus, was fulfilling the big promise to all people everywhere. Listen with me just to these words that Zechariah pours out. Page 1027, Luke chapter 1, verse 67. John's father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and has redeemed his people. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. And his child grew and became strong in spirit and lived into the desert until he appeared publicly in Israel. Right in the heart of this excited outpouring of words is a promise. A promise that goes back to prophets and priests and kings. A promise that goes back to a covenant. Now we've been talking over the last few weeks that a covenant is the best word the Bible has to describe how God relates to us. It says God isn't a God like we would expect him to be. God doesn't relate to us in the way we expect him to relate to us. Remember over the last few weeks we've been saying actually some of the time we think God should relate to us like a contract. As if God says to us look I'm going to love you and be good to you and care for you if and only if or until uh, so that God would only love you if you're a good Christian person, that God would only love you if you pray, that God would only love you somehow if you come to church, and that when we mess up, God's there with a big stick to get us. That's a contract. It's an arm's length legal agreement that says, if I do this, then you do that, and if you do that, I'm going to do this, and if you don't, you're in trouble. But the Bible says again and again, that's not the way that God relates to human beings. Maybe the way that religion works It's not the way the Christian faith is rooted. Not a contract, but also not simply an arm's length commitment. God isn't a God who simply says to us, I approve of whatever you do. I'm your fan. I'm a supporter. I'm committed to you. As if it doesn't really care who we are or what we do or the type of people that we are. God cares far too much for us simply to be committed to us. 
No, what the Bible says is that God makes a covenant with us. And a covenant is a public and binding commitment to love that calls for a response. It's the sort of relationship we see in marriage. It's the sort of relationship you see between a parent and their child. It's the sort of relationship that is most perfectly seen in God. And so in our passage, verse 72 says, he remembers to show mercy to our ancestors, to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham. This ridiculous situation of God swearing an oath. Why would God have to swear an oath? Why would God have to say, I promise? And yet God does, because he wants us to know his covenant is for us. So what does it mean that God has remembered that covenant, that God has fulfilled it? Is it that up to this point, Zachariah thinks God has been breaking it? Or that God hasn't somehow been loving us? That God has somehow been letting down his half? That finally God's going to come through for us? Not a bit of it. Zechariah and all of God's people, ancient Israel, knew that God never let his half of the covenant down. God never stopped loving us. The problem was entirely on the other foot. The problem was with our side. God had chosen a people, not because they were better than anybody else, but simply to be an example to the whole of the world of what it means to love God back. That's what they were meant to be doing. But they failed again and again and again. And that begins to give us a reason why it is that when Zechariah pours out this excitement of seeing his baby son in his arms, the focus of what he pours out isn't actually particularly on his son. The focus of what he pours out is on the job that he knows his son has to do. And his son, he knows, as you read in that very last verse of the passage that I've read, or the last few verses, verse 76, you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him. He's going to be the herald. He's going to be the flag bearer. He's going to be the announcer. He's going to be the door opener. He's going to be the one that says, God is coming not to fulfill his side of the covenant, because God's never stopped loving us. But the astonishing thing is, he sees that God is about to fulfill our part of the covenant. God in Jesus was about to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. God in Jesus was about to live the life we could not live, die the death we should not die, and give us hope that we could not have for ourselves. See, Zachariah was excited because he knew how perilous was their situation without God. I don't know whether you've ever been in a situation where your children don't understand the situation you're in and your aim is to keep it like that. There's a lovely moment, it was captured on video, as is the way these, these days, um, of a child, it's lovely in retrospect because of how it ended up, it sounds awful to start with, um, of a child who somehow um, got round the fences at a zoo and was standing um, on the sort of ledge above a lion's enclosure. And you see the film of this child, a toddler age, so old enough to walk, but old no- not old enough to have a clue what was going on, standing there looking down. Sort of here, kitty, kitty moment. It's a big, hairy lion I want to give a big hug to. And you can imagine the adults there are terrified, absolutely terrified. And there is one amongst them who thinks fast enough not to yell, watch out, and instead says, come and give me a big hug. And the little kid 
toddles over and gives them a big hug, and they're rescued. They're, they're, they're sort of whipped away from the danger. And you can imagine this child looking up into the parent's eyes, thinking, why are they so excited? Why are they so pleased? Why are there tears rolling down their cheeks? I just gave them a hug. Well, that's because they hadn't a clue of the peril that they were in. And the reason that this passage seems so odd to us is because we haven't a clue as to the peril that we're in without what God has done for us in Jesus. And Zachariah is excited because he sees it full on. He sees the problem and he sees that his son is the one who is going to be the announcer of God's great moment where in Jesus he comes to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. Three experiences that he picks up and in each of these experiences he sees not only in his own life but in the life of God's people down through hundreds of years that this is the way it is for human beings without God's help. The first experience is the experience of slavery. To be honest, in, this, in our language today, we might even say the, the experience of addiction. Not so much, although it's an aspect of it, addiction to a substance or one single activity, but what the Bible cashes out as addiction, you might say, to sin. It's like we're slaves, says Zechariah, because we simply cannot be the people we know we should be or want to be. If you have ever, and it's coming round soon, so now's the time to be thinking about it, if you have ever been crazy enough on January the 1st to tell anybody else what your New Year's resolution is, it's one thing to make them, it's quite another thing to tell anybody else, you will know that even the simplest New Year's resolution, even the most straightforward of turning over a new leaf, even choosing one little aspect of life you think you've got half a decent chance of fulfilling, is unbelievably hard to fulfill. Why do you think it is, having picking up my comment from much earlier in the service about gyms, why do you think it is that it's January that you see the adverts for gyms? That's the big advertising budget for, um, for, for gyms and for personal trainers. It's January, because that's the month when we all suddenly go, do you know, this is ridiculous. I've been doing I, this year, I'm going to get fit. This year, I'm going to get healthy. And I know that I'm not the only one for whom by February or March, I'm thinking next year. It'll be fine. Next year will be better. Now, okay, so far so trivial. But we also know that we get into habits and behaviours and thought patterns and attitudes that we are so not proud of that we hope nobody ever notices. Those moments when we catch ourselves being utterly selfish. Those moments when we lose our temper when we know we shouldn't. Those moments when we look down our nose at somebody simply because they dress differently or sound differently or have less money than us or are further down the pecking order at work. Those moments when we make huge assumptions and judgments about others based on their appearance. Those moments where we're embarrassed about our hearts and about our minds. And Zachariah looks back into their history as a people. And he says, do you know, it's like being slaves again. That's why that, first, that second verse, verse 68, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. That word redeemed is the word you use when you buy a slave out of slavery. Back in those days, slavery was so commonplace. And if you wanted a slave to be released, you had to redeem them. You had to pay a price. They couldn't do it themselves. That was the whole point of being a slave. You were stuck. And how does it happen? 
Verse 77, go a little bit further down. Giving his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. I'm a slave to sin. I'm not the man I should be. Not by a long stretch. There's not a single person here who would be comfortable if I were to announce that the next 10 minutes would be taken up with a video show and an audio show of your thoughts and attitudes from the last day. There's not one of us that wouldn't be running for the remote control to switch it off or racing for the the, the fuses to switch it off. There's not one of us that wouldn't be embarrassed if the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts and minds were laid bare. And Zachariah knows that his people and he as an individual time and time again is simply a slave to sin. And what does he look to? He says, praise God, because in Jesus, this Messiah, this, this promised one, God come to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, God brings forgiveness of our sins. As we're bringing up children, we know that they're not perfect. Even very tiny children have learned very quickly um, all sorts of patterns of behaviour we wish they would get out of, and not just childishness. You don't have to teach a child to be selfish. You have to teach children to be selfless. We're still learning, most of us as adults. Actually, what we need is forgiveness and redemption. That's the first experience that he's excited about, to see defeated. But the second one is that what Zachariah has experienced and what his people have experienced for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years is simply being vanquished, being defeated. That sense that the world is against me. Things just don't go right. That there is evil and darkness in this world. That life is simply a battle. The slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. Of course, we try and protect our children from it for as long as we possibly, possibly can. It's one of the things of being a dad as of Friday of a 14-year-old. That the older they get, the less I'm there. They're off at school, they're off playing rugby, they're off doing their thing. The less I can do this to them and protect them from the slings and arrows that come their way. The more it can be expected that they will experience the sense of defeat that comes when life just seems to be against you. When in the midst of all the good stuff of life and the family and friends that love us and maybe the work that's going really well or the roof over our heads or the clothes on our back, those things happen and you just think, oh, Done again, defeated, vanquished. We need saved. We need rescued. God's people again and again throughout the Old Testament, there is this boom and bust pattern of them having a great time, enjoying God's presence, enjoying being God's people, starting to show the world what it is to love him back. And then they get proud. And then they think, actually, you know, we're doing a pretty good job of this. And bang. Along comes the next defeat, the next experience of what it is to be on the receiving end of those slings and arrows. And then they run back to God again and say, oh, sorry, we forgot. And God rescues them again. Jesus on the cross was to take the full frontal assault of the very worst produced by the very best of what humanity has ever been able to achieve at the hands of the Romans and the religious authorities, he had dished out to him the worst, if you like, the best legal, political and religious systems the world has ever known. 
could dish out. Justice that wasn't justice. Punishment that was pure, vicious torture. A death that was long and drawn out, humiliating and crushing. The very worst defeat that could be meted out on anybody was landed on Christ's shoulders on the cross. And what Zachariah saw dimly and what we see clearly is that God in Jesus defeated that evil. That although Jesus died, he was not destroyed. And that the very worst that life could throw at him was defeated because he was the victor. Zachariah had good reason to be excited. This being slaves to sin one day would be redeemed with the gift of forgiveness. This experience of just being on the defeating it, being defeated again and again by evil, one day he would experience the victory of Jesus. And yet, there is something even harder to deal with for any of us than the experience of our own personal failures and the experience of being on the receiving end of those slings and arrows. It's that looming and gnawing fear that comes when the veil moves out of the way and we have to think about our own mortality. It's what Zachariah calls the shadow of death, verse 79. Living in darkness and in the shadow of death. Jean-Paul Sartre, who was a a famous philosopher and atheist of the last century, was interviewed by The Guardian in 1975, and he, he said, until I was 30, I was convinced I was immortal. And then, for him, the bottom fell out of his world. It was the end. But for Zachariah, it's not. Because he doesn't deny the darkness of having to think about our own mortality, that life does have a finite end. Instead, what he does is he says, into that darkness, in those shadows, comes light. Verse 78, because the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven, or in the translation we've just read, because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death. Zachariah looked into the eyes of this baby in his arms, in the excitement of being a new dad, and he knew that his little boy, John, was going to have his own addictions to deal with, the stuff he couldn't get past, the stuff that would always pull him down. He knew that there would be bad things that happened to him because it happens to all of us. And he knew that he would have to live his life in the shadow of death. But God, God in Jesus was coming to bring redemption from sin for his little boy and for all people. He was coming to bring salvation, rescue from evil for his little boy and for all people everywhere. And most of all, he was coming to destroy and defeat that last enemy, even of death. Because death could not hold Jesus. But he rose to bring all of us the sure hope of life of the world to come. God comes round to our side of the covenant 
He takes on his shoulders the consequences of us singularly being incapable of keeping up our end, of loving God back in the same way that he loves us. And because he loves us so much, he does for us what we could not do for ourselves and wins for us what we could not win for ourselves and gives us the gift of forgiveness, of rescue, and of new life. And as we've baptised Benjamin and Agatha, we've baptised them into that covenant. They get to know that they belong to God's people. They get to be offered the benefits of belonging to the people of God. And they also get the motivation to start loving him back with the words that they speak and the things that they do, the people they're becoming, because God loved them first in Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that in Jesus you've done for us what we could not do for ourselves. And even as we find ourselves slaves to our own sin, even as we find ourselves defeated by the the evil that is in this world, and even as we walk in this life in the darkness of the shadow of death, we thank you that in Jesus you have paid the price of redemption so that we can be forgiven. You have been the victor over evil so that we can be saved. And that most of all, you have destroyed death so that we could live in the light of your presence. And our prayer for Benjamin and Agatha, for little Henry, and for all the children that are growing up amongst us, and for we ourselves, is that as we grow, we would know more and more of what it is to be loved by you and to have you do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And we pray this in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen.